This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to The Holistic Survival Show with Jason Hartman. The economic storm brewing around the world is set to spill into all aspects of our lives. Are you prepared? Where are you going to turn for the critical life skills necessary to survive and prosper? The Holistic Survival Show is your family's insurance for a better life. Jason will teach you to think independently, to understand threats, and how to create the ultimate action plan. Sudden change or worst case scenario, you'll be ready. Welcome to Holistic Survival, your key resource for protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Jason Hartman. Thanks for joining me today, listeners in 189 countries worldwide. It's great to have you here. So, what, it's been about two years, right, since I moved to Florida, and I have coined a new phrase. This phrase, I'll bet you, will be copied by promoters and gurus and marketers and cheap competitors that have no original ideas of their own. <laughs> yes, the knockoff people. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Okay, <laughs> here's the new phrase. What do you think of it? I was thinking, you know, it's almost May and the weather in Florida is still phenomenal. You know, last year I remember it being a little bit hot and kind of unpleasant at this time, but actually it's still pretty great this year. And it's been so nice for so long that I have coined a new term, being from California and having overpaid to live in California for so many years, decades, decades in California, overpaying in taxes and the cost of living and the cost of real estate. Remember, when I left Orange County, California and sold my last house there, my PITI plus association fees, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, that's my mortgage payment, plus my homeowners association fees, were roughly $11,000 a month. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Okay, 11000 bucks a month. I sold my house in Orange County, and I moved to live in Arizona for six years. Absolutely loved it. Couldn't believe how much my cost of living went down, and my quality of life went up right? So I'm walking around yesterday and I'm thinking, you know, Florida, the weather is so great. So much of the time, it's just perfection. Better than California, interestingly, and a lot cheaper, no state income taxes, lower cost of living, et cetera, et cetera, that I've coined the new phrase, tell me what you think, luxury weather. Yes, I think this is called luxury weather. <laughs> what do you think? Hey, guess how many tenants last month, as we are in crazy times right now, Guess how many tenants didn't pay the rent? Now, not like what I shared with you yesterday. I'm not saying the same thing I said yesterday. Yesterday, it was different. Most of the tenants did actually pay the rent. The vast majority of tenants paid the rent. And probably more people paid their rent than owners who, on the flip side of that equation, didn't pay their mortgage, right? But when I say didn't pay the rent this time, I mean it differently. I mean, they didn't directly pay because they used, guess what? A piece of plastic to pay their rent. No, they didn't go to the landlord and say, hey, will you take this uh, pile of plastic? Nope. They paid with a credit card. Yes, 
tenants are paying with the credit cards. Hey, you know, you get those frequent flyer miles or those bonus cash back points or whatever it is on your credit card. Well, guess what? 30% is the increase in the number of apartment tenants. This is only apartments who paid their rent this month with a credit card compared to the prior month. So there was a 30% month-over-month increase, okay? This is according to a company named Zago that processes more than 2 million rent payments each month. Um, And another company called Entrada also found an increase in credit card usage, yet they don't have a specific number. So 2 million tenants in apartments. This does not include single-family homes. Remember, stats for single-family homes are hard to get. It's like that really cute girl or guy that you had a crush on in high school. They were hard to get, okay? Statistics for rental housing, single-family homes, because it's so fragmented, very hard to get those stats. 30%, that's a crazy number, okay? Hey, today, by the way, we're going to talk about T. Boone Pickens. Yes, the late oil billionaire. And I guess he did not pass away as a billionaire, uh, but he was a billionaire for a long time. You certainly heard his name. And we have on the show today his former lawyer, his lawyer that litigated this big case for him in Texas over an oil deal gone bad. Remember what I said, litigation is a form of human rights. It is a form of human rights, just like private property rights. In fact, litigation is totally tied to private property rights, because how else do you enforce them except by the the barrel of a gun or in a courtroom, peaceably, right? So you're going to hear a really interesting story today, and it's very topical given everything that's going on in the oil market as the oil market absolutely falls apart and many other markets falling apart too, but oil has been very pronounced. And we are going to see a serious supply-demand shock when the recovery gets underway because oil is one of those areas where the supply-demand shock is going to be very pronounced, okay? Very pronounced. So we'll get to that interview in just a few minutes. Very interesting lady, his lawyer, talking to us. So I've called it, you've heard me call it, Stimulus Maximus. (laughs) Stimulus Maximus. So there's another stimulus package on the way, as we all knew there would be. The Senate passed a $484 billion, that's with a B, coronavirus stimulus bill that will inject $320 billion into the depleted small business loan programs. We did a show on that that aired Saturday because we're seven days a week right now. Won't last forever. We're going back to five here in the not-too-distant future. But we talked about the types of bailout loans available to you. Check that out on Saturday's episode if you want to see the visuals for that. It's also on my YouTube channel. And by the way, thank you all for subscribing to my YouTube channel and engaging with the videos there. It is really taking off finally. We've never been very good at YouTube until recently, but we're just so glad to welcome so many new subscribers. And hey, the more faith you show in us, subscribe, like, share, comment on the videos on YouTube, the more content we will produce. So see, you get to vote. And we were listening, we're listening. So go and vote, subscribe, like. 
engage on YouTube. Okay, and it devotes $60 billion specifically to the SBA's EIDL program, which we talked about on the Saturday episode, and that's the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. So $60 billion earmarked just for that program, not the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. Okay, $75 billion to hospitals and $25 billion to testing for you-know-what, COVID-19. Okay, so pretty interesting there. Now, here is my comment on that. The primary value drivers, as I have taught you over the years, the primary value drivers for anything, for anything, remember, I just talked about that guy or gal you like in high school and had a crush on, and what made that person, this even applies to people, what made that so valuable to you? Well, (laughs) this is going to sound kind of funny, so don't hold me on this one, but it is true, okay? What makes anything valuable, what makes any economic unit valuable, even a loved one, is scarcity and utility. Scarcity and utility. So if something is abundant, in fact, if there's other people that you have crushes on everywhere, then, hey, they're everywhere. They're not scarce. They're not that valuable, right? Because, hey, if this one doesn't like you, the next one will like you, right? And same thing is true. Why are diamonds more valuable than sand? Because there's a lot more sand in the world, and De Beers has cornered the diamond market and violated all sorts of antitrust laws and screwed the world over. You know, before De Beers really started their marketing, De Beers is the big diamond company, of course, before they really started their marketing, it wasn't all about a diamond engagement ring. That was like their big marketing idea. A diamond is forever, and diamonds are a girl's best friend, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, I don't know that De Beers made both of those things up. I think they did the forever thing, or at least they popularized it. And the girl's best friend, I think that was like Marilyn Monroe or something, but whatever. Okay, so scarcity and utility, the two fundamental value drivers for anything, certainly anything in the economy, and also anything period, point blank. So if the thing that makes a, a, a dollar, a euro, a yen, a peso, a Brazilian real, a Russian ruble, whatever, those currencies, the dollar, you know, if what makes them valuable is scarcity and utility, then what happens when the government pumps $2.2 trillion more into the economy And then just a couple of weeks later, they pump another half a trillion dollars into the economy. And pretty much everybody and their brother knows that there's trillions more to come. Trillion with a T, by the way. Trillion with a T. A big number, right? What does that mean for the future of dollars in terms of their scarcity and utility? Well, guess what? Everybody says inflation, inflation, inflation. Of course, the inflation monster. And we all know that pressure will always be there, and it's coming. We're going to see more of it. But wait a second. Now, if you pump all these dollars in, right, and our mantra is scarcity and utility, you really need both of them, okay, both at once. See, gold is scarce, but it doesn't really have much utility except arguably for money, which the gold bugs would argue is the ultimate utility, but the world has clearly said that 
you know, there's more money than just gold, okay? So the dollar has been strong lately, even though they are pumping them out like they're going out of style. Why? Why would that be? Because the dollar has so much utility. The almighty dollar, the reserve currency of the world, is being hoarded and used and gobbled up. There's so much demand for dollars because people need to fulfill obligations. In a closed system like the U.S. and a taxing agency like the IRS, the IRS will only allow you to pay your taxes in dollars. In fact, if you don't pay and they seize your assets, you know, that yacht you have and that house you have and that second home you have, if they have to come in and seize all your assets, right, because you don't pay your taxes in dollars, causing more demand for dollars, guess what they're going to do with those assets? As quick as they can, they're going to convert them to dollars. They're going to put them on an auction, sell them, going to collect dollars, and use that to pay your tax bill for you. So this is very interesting as you look at how it goes. But just remember, anything that's valuable to you anywhere in your life, scarcity and utility scarcity and utility. There you go. You got it. Okay. Hey, we have a private podcast in our JHU, Jason Hartman University members section, where we post articles and podcasts and resources, offer discounts to products and events and things like that. And that is on the new economic Marshall plan, a new version of the Marshall plan. So JHU members, look for that in your portal when you log in and be sure to take advantage of that private podcast just for you. And if you're not a member, go to jasonhartman.com and join us in JHU. It's an annual membership, and I think you'll like it, so take advantage of it. But yeah, check out that private podcast on the Economic Marshall Plan in the JHU members portal. And without further ado, let's get to T. Boone Pickens, lawyer, and let's hear about this very interesting story and this oil deal, business deal that went bad and what the outcome was. It's my pleasure to welcome Crystal Castaneda. She is the go-to lawyer for high-stakes, contentious litigation in the energy industry and beyond. She's a Dallas trial lawyer and head of the Castaneda firm, a boutique litigation firm that handles complex commercial oil and gas disputes. There's obviously a lot going on in the energy industry right now with prices collapsing. Her firm won a very large uh, verdict for her client, T. Boone Pickens. It was a $145 million verdict. She is also running for Texas Railroad Commissioner and has a lot to share with us about some insights into the energy industry and uh, maybe a little bit about her book, The Last Trial of T. Boone Pickens. Krista, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's good to have you on. So first off, just give us a quick overview of what happened with uh, uh, T. Boone Pickens and this investment deal gone bad. You know, many of our listeners are investors, and and we always say try to avoid pooled money investments. Uh, And oil and gas is particularly risky, but T. Boone Pickens is an oil and gas man, so you know, I guess he would he would know his way around this stuff. What happened? 
So, yeah, Pickens invested in an area of mutual interest play, also known as an AMI agreement, for 15% in 2007 in the Permian. And back then, the Permian hadn't proved out. It looked like it was, you know, had petered out and wasn't really a place people were looking for oil anymore. And, and, And this, by the way, is the Permian Basin, which is an oil reserve. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and it's where all the oil is being produced in West Texas now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's if it were a country, it'd be the eighth largest oil producing country in the world. So anyway, back in 2007, Pickens agreed to participate for 15% in this investment deal. And the idea of it is it's kind of like a series of option contracts. The parties agree that they're going to go buy leases in a certain county, certain sections, and every time they pick one up, the the people agree, okay, I'm in for my 15%, which means I get 15% of the ownership and the profits, or I'm passing on this one. So Pickens signed up and agreed to participate in every one of those deals. And then you built, you, you drill the wells and prove that there's oil there. And you, you try to do it under the radar because what you want to do is pick up as much land and as much territory and then you know, prove it out and then sell it for many, many times what your investment In was. other words, you want to do that quietly so other wildcatters don't get wind of it and then start competing with you to buy up the land and, and the leases of oil wells, right? Exactly. Before you get into that bidding war, you want to prove up your land and your concept and hope you start the bidding war. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how, you know, you put pennies in and you get millions out. That's the kind of the concept of these deals. And what ended up happening was that one of the investors needed to bring in more of a piece of the pie to spread its risk among sub-investors, which is how this gets done. And so they claimed that Pickens said he wanted out of the deal, and they tried to buy his interest, didn't end up buying his interest, but ended up taking his 15% going forward anyway. And so that's what the lawsuit was about, and we did end up winning $145 million. How much did T. Boone Pickens invest in that deal? You never said that. You said it was a 15% share, but can you disclose what he actually put into the deal? Sure. By the time we went to trial, he had a little over a million dollars in the deal. And of course, the million was supposed to turn into what we claimed at one point, a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the the whole pie it ended up being worth uh, several billion dollars. So we were claiming picking 15% plus a little bit more because we were litigating the issue. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. So basically, the the verdict, the the judgment you got for the hundred and forty six million dollars was for lost profits. That was the opportunity cost, or one hundred and forty five million dollars, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And it was paired back by a series of court rulings about which part of the properties we could end up claiming and. Um, there were limitations issues. You know, you have to bring claims. You have to bring claims within a certain period of time. In Texas, that's four years. And so all those rules got applied and we were allowed to ask the jury for exactly what we got. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay, good stuff. Well, that's a fascinating story. And the book is just about to be released, I guess. So it looks very, very fascinating. And uh, again, that's the last trial of T. Boone Pickens. If we can shift gears, though, for a moment, the everybody's talking about the Wuhan virus, coronavirus, whatever we want to call it, COVID-19. And 
after you know we saw the or as we saw the financial markets plummet so did the oil market and i mean it is just shocking to see what has happened to oil prices you know you know a lot about the economics of the energy industry what's going on and what can we expect in the future well those are great questions so Number one thing is we're all staying in our houses. We are not driving to work. We're not driving to restaurants and bars. We aren't taking trips. We aren't flying anywhere. That has cratered demand for oil and gas. So what's ended up happening is, and particularly here in Texas, but also in Saudi Arabia and Russia, they've taken this particular period of time uh, as the opportunity to start a supply war. So they are oversupplying the market, which was already oversupplied. And oil has dropped down into the teens and low 20s from where it was three months ago, which was in the 60s per barrel. That's West Texas Intermediate. And so the oil companies are hemorrhaging cash right now. And, And in fact, they're being told by pipeline companies here in Texas don't even plan on producing because we can't take any more. Our storage facilities are becoming glutted with the excess supply. Yeah. It is an incredible, incredible they're, time. They're, they're actually uh, using, actually, oil tankers are now being used as storage units. Even, you know, it's, it's not about shipping the oil. It's about literally just storing it because there's such an oversupply. And, and if you have such vessels, or empty tanks, you're making money like crazy. But the the oil companies themselves are they, there's there's no there's no place for their product to go. Wow. And so we are in in a really really challenging time for the industry right now. And so you know the Railroad Commission of Texas, which has nothing to do with railroads, it has everything to do with oil and gas. It is our oil and gas regulator is for the first time in 40 years considering whether to enact production controls because it was the first OPEC. Hmm. So what what are we going to do about this? So production control can only be as, as far as Texas, though. I mean, you can't control Saudi Arabia well, and Russia and Venezuela and stuff. Well, Venezuela is a disaster anyway, but, <laughs> you know, that's a different discussion. Well, Right. So in, in, interestingly, you mentioned that I'm running for the Texas Railroad right. Commission. The, Repu- the Republican incumbent lost his election, mm-hmm. which interestingly, apparently has freed him up to advocate for what Republicans almost never advocate for, which is production controls. And he's actually going to Saudi Arabia and talking with Russia about some kind of coordinated response to try to limit production internationally. And then there are also interstate agreements whereby, you know, we could limit production, North Dakota could limit production. There, there is a coordinated market mechanism. I don't know that Saudi Arabia and Russia are our friends, and I'm skeptical that the strategy is going to work on that level. But I think for, for Texas producers, at least, you know, the the commission has got to hold the hearings that now oil companies themselves are asking be held to figure out what to do about this. Okay, so you you and the Republican incumbent, your opponent, are both for production uh, controls, right? Well, what I'm calling for is to actually dust off the machinery that hasn't been used for 40 years 
figure out whether it still works in the age of horizontal drilling and how it would look, and then gather the information. For for goodness sake, the one thing we need right now is government that gathers information and acts promptly and decisively to mitigate all of these risks, you know, whether it's a health perspective or whether it's markets crashing, we need functioning government. And this is what's proving it out. Mm -hmm. So consumers listening to this might say, well, what's the problem here? I like cheap gas for $1.99. I mean, that's the cheapest I've seen it in forever. They're thinking this is a good thing. But the bigger problem is is that when you put all these oil producers out of business, and you'll want to elaborate on this, I'm no expert, but you, you put them out of business, then when you need their product again, they're not there to supply it. And you have this supply-demand shock issue that we're experiencing with other products right now because China was offline for you know a good three-plus months. It's a, it's a national security issue to, to see that we have an oil industry in the country, right? I mean, yes, you're exactly right. And the problem with no regulation is that there the shocks come through unmitigated, right? There's this what they call a bullwhip effect. So, you know, it's great right now where we're all paying less than $2 a gallon for gasoline, even though we're all staying home. But what is going to end up happening is that bullwhip is going to come back up to where, you know, we're paying for $5 a gallon for gasoline because there isn't, you know, a functioning market for oil and gas production because so many people have been driven out of business. You want an orderly transition from phase to phase, and we're definitely not going to get that with nobody taking a look at these issues. Thank God the Railroad Commission is waking up, but for so long it's been asleep at the wheel. And I just hope it's not too late. Well, so what, why do they call it the Railroad Commission? I mean, so what's, the, what's over, the railroad thing have to do with it? Yeah, oh, it's over 100 years old. Yeah. Um, it was originally set up because, of all things, grain shippers in Texas could not get the railroads to transport their grain for fair prices and, uh, you know, allow shipping interstate and out of the state. And so it was set up to regulate the railroad industry. And then later on, you know, the federal government has almost exclusive control over our, our railway system now. And so the Railroad Commission no longer has any role to play with railroads, but it picked up oil and gas regulation about 100 years ago as well. Um, and uh, they've just never changed the name. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's fine. I mean, there's that's not the first agency that's like that. But what do we do to keep it in business? You know, keep the oil industry in business. Obviously, shale's out because that's just too expensive to produce. Uh, you know, unless oil's what like fifty dollars a barrel or something like that, right? Yeah. So a lot of the producers are hedged at fifty dollars. Um, there's a little bit of a cushion here. What's going to happen is on. I, I had mentioned that a couple of companies had filed a petition to have a hearing on this issue. And those companies are going to be heard on April the 14th. And I hope what ends up happening is the Railroad Commission gathers the information necessary and makes some hard decisions about how to help guide the industry. And frankly, a lot of Texas jobs and a huge portion of our state revenues into a, a little calmer environment. But the answer's not here yet. 
Yeah, yeah. So what what do you expect? I mean, what's coming down the road here? You know, we're in such uncharted territory with the pandemic. And I don't know that uh, I really ever see, even when this blows over, at least for a, quite a while, the same level of travel. You know, a lot more people are going to work at home now. I think I think these are these are things that are going to stick with us to an extent, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that we have been changed and will be changed by this event. Um, I mean, we are still social creatures. We still will seek our favorite restaurants and watering holes and, you know, vacations on the beach. Um, but, you know, will, will it shift the way we work fundamentally to where we do more work from home? Possibly. I mean, I think there's a lot of employers who are figuring out, yes, people can be working from home and maybe we don't need huge real estate portfolios to house all those people at the office. I, I, you know, your guess is as good as mine on that stuff, but I think pretty clearly life will change as a result of this. Yeah, it definitely Probably will. Probably in some ways for the better. Yeah, right. In some ways for the better. Uh, agreed, agreed. But for sure, probably a lessening in demand for oil and other energy products as well, right? At least for the short term, I would agree with that. You know, there's one really interesting aspect of oil and gas that doesn't get talked about a lot, and that is plastics. Mm-hmm. You know, all you need to do is look at your clothing or your pen or your computer screen or your cell phone and realize that our lives are suffused with oil and gas um, in the products that we use every day, even if we don't drive gasoline powered vehicles. So how that transition gets made, I, I it, it remains to be seen. But, you know, I think we're going to have the need for plastics and therefore the need for petroleum products with us for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No question about that. Okay, good. Well, what else do you want to share with people, uh, either about the case or the oil industry? Um, just just anything I haven't asked you? Well, you know, we started talking about the book. And I think the book is a really interesting uh, picture of what it's like to be in the Texas oil patch. This case was tried in Pecos, Texas for five weeks. Uh T. Boone Pickens, the former corporate raider, remember this is the guy who terrorized Wall Street in the 1980s with his takeover attempts. At 88 years old, sat through that trial every day trying Mm -hmm. to get justice for him being cut out of a deal. And so it's a very interesting, in, in my opinion, juxtaposition of his early life and his later life. And if you're interested in child drama at all, I'm hoping people think it's a really interesting read. Do do you think we'll see a movie out of it? I I would love to see a movie out (laughs) of it. Um, If Reese Witherspoon is listening, and I hope she is, I think she'd be great at playing me. Uh Um, So (laughs) we can can cross our fingers. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But but what what was the big deal? I mean, here you've got T. Boone Pickens, a billionaire, in, I guess this is a little podunk court or not. Am I wrong about that? I mean, I've never heard of the the county you mentioned, right? Yeah, you're not wrong. So um, this Pecos, Texas, I think it's it's normal population is about 8,000 people. And, you know, it's swelled with all the oil workers, right? But it is the heart of the Permian Basin. It is where, right. I mean, it is at the, the very center of where all this development was going on. But 
you know, it's got the infrastructure of the 1950s and 60s. And so, you know, the judge who presided over a trial, he has three counties, one of which is Loving County, the only has 102 people in the entire county. This was Reeves County. So he would ride circuit from, from as we call it, from county to county. And it was his first trial. And there was just a lot of Wow. A lot of really interesting, interesting things that happened, you know, when you're trying a case in a hundred year old courthouse with technology that, uh, you know, is not really up to par. And, and, you know, all these lawyers, I mean, we had probably 10, 15, 20 lawyers um, that's, that's involved incredible. in this case. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and this, this was, I guess, a state court, not a federal courthouse, right? Correct. Yeah, wow. most of our most of our <laughs> contract disputes in the United States get tried in state court. Yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah, if there were cross state lines, it it end up in federal court probably. But yeah, very interesting, very interesting stuff. Well, thank you for sharing this with us, and please give out your website. Obviously, the book is available in all the usual places, but maybe you have a direct website you want to share with people. Sure. So the book is actually website is lasttrialoftboonpickens.com. And it is out, and the Amazon is delaying shipping because of uh, the need to put out essential products right now, and sure. they're not shipping books. But you can order it directly from the um, publisher, and that's Texas A&M University Press. And then uh, campaign website is Krista, C-H-R-Y-S-T-A for Texas.com if people are interested in about the Railroad Commission. All right, Krista. Well, thanks for joining us, and good luck on the election, and be well. Thank you, and thanks for chatting. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.